Good morning. We're glad that you're here. Uh, we're going to start with a word of prayer. We've got a number of things to take before the Lord before we dive into the scripture this morning. So y'all uh, bow your heads and go to the Lord with me in, in prayer. Lord, we're thankful for this day. Um, I'm thankful that we can sing um, true songs uh, about how good you are and to know that we're not even really scratching the surface. I'm thankful, Lord, that we can sing songs of anticipation about what's to come and, and, and to truly be filled um, with an eagerness for that thing. I pray that that helps us to, um, to live rightly in, in a God-glorifying manner in our time, our short time uh, here on earth. Lord, you are very, very good to us, and so we come before you very humbly this morning, and we thank you that you're a God who allows us to, to let our requests be made known. And I'm thankful that we can be comforted in the moment that we let our requests be made known to know that we have a very sovereign God who pays attention to all of the details and that you will tend to things as, as you see fit. So I'm thankful that you're compassionate and I'm thankful that you're trustworthy. Lord, we, we, uh, we pray for Ben and Christy as they're traveling um, and for the McGraws, uh, for all of them, not just Ben and Christy. Uh, pray that as they're traveling for the next few weeks, I pray that you would keep them safe in their travels. And I pray that um, the rest and growth that we hope for in a, uh, in a pastor sabbatical would, would really happen, that they would be blessed um, by their time together and blessed by their time with you in a place that's unique um, and maybe, maybe less uh, interrupted uh, as if they were right here. Um, Lord, we, uh, we pray that you would bless them uh, immensely as they go. We also pray for our youth as they travel uh, and they're, they're at camp. I'm thankful for a good group that uh, was able to even leave on time, which is just a miracle. We thank you, Lord, that you, uh, you got them out the door safely and got them to camp safely. I'm also thankful, Lord, um, for a number of adults who, um, even adults who didn't have youth, that would use their, their own vacation time to go and to serve um, our students. I'm just humbled by that and thankful for that. And I see that as very, very recountable. I pray that you would bless their time. And, and um, in a similar prayer, we pray that it, it would be a whole lot of fun, but we pray that it wouldn't stop there, but that there would be true uh, spiritual rest and spiritual growth. Uh, Lord, we pray uh, for Christina Holden's dad this morning as he has um, been uh, rushed to the hospital. I um, pray that you would give the doctors wisdom and the family peace and patience um, as that family is, is a member of this church family. We, we want to lift that up to you humbly and, uh, and go straight to you with those details, knowing that you are a very good and a very loving God um, who sees fit to tend to those things and to shepherd your children through them. Lord, I pray uh, for Greg Fields this morning, a local pastor, and for Westminster Presbyterian. I pray that they are enjoying you as a congregation this morning, really worshiping wholeheartedly. I pray that, uh, that Greg would be enjoying you as he preaches your word. And I pray, Lord, that um, you would uh, continue to guide him and, and his family as, as you see fit. I pray that he and Tracy would be living together in an understanding way so that their prayers aren't hindered. And I'm just personally very thankful for that family and for that church and the blessing that they are uh, to our community. Lord, as we gather here as, as your people, I pray um, that as a people, you would bless us with insight this morning. Um, we're talking about um, 
the intricacies of walking with other people, um, particularly in their sin and uh, in their heartache and in their weakness this morning. And um, I just think it needs a significant measure of wisdom um, that none of us can, can just muster. Your word says that if we lack wisdom, we're to come to you and ask you who gives generously to all without reproach. And so we ask that this morning, that as we go through your scriptures and as we seek your will for our relationships, that you would give us wisdom that we would otherwise not have. And not just so that we would do things right, but so that you would be glorified and honored um, by your children living in a way that rightly represents you. We love you and we thank you for this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody like to be admonished? No? Okay, fantastic. Does anybody like to be corrected in their sin? You like it, that moment when someone says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. Does anybody like to admonish other people? I figured there'd probably be a couple of you. You're like, yeah, I like doing that. I don't like being on the receiving end, but I don't mind being on the giving end. Yeah, that, um, because of that dynamic, when, when we talk about addressing sin in each other's lives or or a lack of order in each other's lives. I think that this, um, we're kind of set up for a bit of a challenge this morning. So I wanna encourage you to pay attention to details that are in the scripture uh, because we're talking about something that none of us really like doing all that much and the majority of us don't like receiving all that much, but it's an absolute non-negotiable in the scriptures that is made to benefit us so that we can see the, the blessing in it and see our Lord more clearly. So. I think we have a challenge set for us this morning. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 5.14. 1 Thessalonians 5.14. It's a short little verse. It's right after Colossians, right before Timothy, or technically right before 2 Thessalonians, but you know what I mean. Um, It's a short little verse, but we are going to spend the next few weeks here. So the verse is 1 Thessalonians 5.14, and it says this. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. I'm going to read it again. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Today, we're going to focus specifically on, I urge you brothers, admonish the idle. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll look at the rest of the verse. But that'll be our main focus this morning. And it gives you a roadmap for, for what's coming up in this. This is where we'll be spending our next few weeks. The title for this three-part uh, series is Admonish, Encourage, or Help? Question mark. Admonish, Encourage, or Help? This short verse is intensely practical and can be drawn upon for wisdom in numerous occasions. It guides us into answering questions as to when is the right time to do these things? When is the right time to admonish? And when is the right time to help? When is the right time to encourage? And then it also leads us into the question of, is there ever a wrong time to do any of those things? Is it ever wrong to do one of those things when I should be doing the other? So those are some of the dynamics of what we're, we're gonna be considering. First, have you ever considered how much God says about our relationships? Have you considered how much God says about our relationships? Whether it's between husband and wife, parent and child, which some of our children are in here this morning. Y'all are doing a great job so far. Keep it up. Husband and wife, parent and child, or between friends, or between strangers. 
God has a lot to say about our relationships with other people. Just take a few verses, for example. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. There's a lot that's said in Scripture about our relationship with other people. In all of this text about relationship dynamics, here's what I want to make sure we don't do this morning. We must make sure not to see Jesus in the wrong light. So the positive of that was we've got to make sure we see him in the right light. We can't just see Jesus this morning as a relationship counselor who just wants us all to get along, okay? Don't, because if we set the bar there, we're not aiming high enough with the text. Jesus isn't just a relationship counselor who wants us to all get along. He's the king of kings who is ushering in his kingdom. As we talk about relationship dynamics and what Jesus has to say about how we interact and mingle and what we say to each other, we need to see him as the king of kings ushering in his kingdom. So our question would be, how is he ushering it in? How is the king of kings moving his kingdom forward in relationships? And particularly, what do the details of this verse have to do with Jesus and his rule? The first detail that I want us to consider is this. And this is a really long sentence. I'll warn you ahead of time. So listen closely. We are not rightly communicating our message of hope, redemption, and strength to persevere if we allow ourselves or are allowed by others to stay stuck in faint-heartedness, idleness, and weakness. I'll say it again. We are not rightly communicating the message. We are ambassadors. We have a message from Jesus that we are to communicate to everyone we encounter, to the nations. It's the message that will win the world over for the glory of Jesus and for the forward movement of his kingdom. And we're not rightly representing a message of hope, redemption, and strength to persevere if we get stuck in faint-heartedness, idleness, and weakness. If God's design, according to this short little verse, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. If God's design in this short little verse is to provide for us through each other admonishment, encouragement, and help, it means that he doesn't want us to remain idle, faint-hearted, or weak. God wants us to move away from such things to good order, obedience, enlarged souls, and strength that perseveres. I hope that sounds good to you this morning. I hope you're thinking, yeah, I'm not so um, fired up about being um, faint-hearted all the time. I'm not so fired up about being idle and can't ever get my wheels spinning for any more than about 10 minutes at a time. I'm not so encouraged by feeling weak and helpless all the time. I hope you're encouraged at what God is saying in these verses. He's saying, I want to move you to a place of good order and obedience and strength and perseverance and enlarged souls. The reason I say all that before we dive into our text is that if we see all of this as God's plan and what God is accomplishing, then I think we'll take more seriously the call to admonish, encourage, and help when it's appropriate. We'll, we'll, we'll put aside some of those misconceptions that we have about, oh, I don't want to just be a, a, all up in everyone's business. I don't want people to think I'm, I'm in their, their business. I don't want people to think I'm, I'm, I'm pushy. I don't want people to, to think, I, that's their deal, that's their deal. No, God is saying, no, 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 this is our deal. And we walk through these things faithfully together. And, and those, those inhibitions that we have to admonish or to encourage or to help right when it's needed, 
I hope we'll go by the wayside a little bit if we can see that this is God's plan and how he's really aiming to bless the church. So let's pick this verse apart from the beginning. Look at it, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, Paul has written this letter to the Thessalonian church. We urge you, brothers. It's really important for us to make sure we know who the brothers are in this verse. In the previous verse, if you just look just a little before it, um, Paul says, brothers, respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. He's talking to the same brothers and sisters. So what's made clear in those two verses is that Paul is not addressing the leadership of the church only. Paul's addressing the membership of the church, which I want to remind you includes but is not limited to leadership. So I don't want you to hear me preaching a message saying, well, I'm a pastor. This does not pertain to me, but you people need to admonish, encourage, and help each other. No, no, no. Membership means, means everyone, and that includes but is not limited to the leadership. There are times in my life where I have to watch something. I'll say, I can't do that. I'm a pastor. I can't say that. I'm a pastor. But what, what's really more true to the word and true to God's design is I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a Christian, or I need to do that because I'm a Christian. It's more about being our, uh, the, the children of the Lord, and so he's addressing the church, all of us, you and me. He's not addressing only the leadership. Many of us grew up in churches where the normal expectation was that you hired a church staff to do the work of ministry. I grew up in a church like that. The work of ministry needs to be done. Let's hire a big staff and let them do it. If someone needed to be admonished, well, you told the pastor about it, right? Uh, pastor so-and-so, uh, Bill needs to be, Bob needs to be, Joe needs to be, George, George needs to be, whoever. I'm going for the most basic names, but we have some basic names in this body, so it's not particular. Um, they need to be admonished. Can you go, go hook that up? Take care of that. If someone needed help, well, you got them and you took them to your pastor. If someone had questions about faith, maybe your children had questions about faith, well, you'd, you'd take them and take them to the pastor. And in many cases, if you personally had a problem with someone, you would go to the pastor so that he could solve your problem without causing a scene. This approach to church is not biblical. And Paul is addressing, in this verse, the brothers and the sisters of the church to do the hard work of admonishing, encouraging, and helping one another. John Stott, in his commentary on Thessalonians, says, the existence of pastors does not relieve members of their responsibilities to care for one another. Do you know that if you are a member of this church, you have a responsibility to care for the others that are sitting in this room with you right now? Like, look around. Make some eye contact. That's okay. You're to be caring for one another. A good pastor does not try to independently care for every individual on his own. A good pastor will lead the church to care for each other, as is appropriate with the word. Ephesians 4 does say that God gives the gift of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and teachers to the church. He does do that, but it also says that the purpose of those gifts that he gives to the church is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of service, and you are the saints. He's referring to the church. 
for that work of ministry. So this is the call that God has placed on our lives as believers walking with other brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to make sure we understand just how level the ground is and how, how wide the call is to every member of his church. We have to care for one another. So how do we do that? I want you to notice that it doesn't come across as a suggestion. Paul says, I urge you, brothers. This is the kind of call that produces a particular effect. Just consider, parents, if you say to your child, I urge you to clean up your room. And if your child said, I'll think about it, what would your response be? No, no, no. I didn't suggest it. I urge you to turn around, take your little tail to your little room, and clean up all of your little toys. Yeah, an urging. You're trying to produce a particular effect. You're not just throwing out an idea. Sometimes we have a tendency to hear a command and treat it like a suggestion or an idea. However, this is not simply some notion that Paul wants you to reflect upon. This is something we can be really guilty of as a church if we're not careful regularly reflecting upon the notion of helping people. We'll have studies about it. We'll read books about it. The urge is to produce a particular effect. It's not a notion we just think about and talk about. Oh, yeah, we should help those people. Oh, okay, well, hold on. Is anyone going to do that? Oh, the orphans. Yeah, we should, we should help the orphans. Okay, well, who's, who's opening their home? Oh, the hungry, yeah, we should help the hungry. But Okay, who's going and getting some food? You see what I'm saying? It's not just a notion that we reflect upon. This is a, a call. When he says, I urge you, brothers, he's saying, it's time to do some work, church. Okay? Now, the call is to take action, to actually do something. If there are people who are idle, faint-hearted, or weak, then there is something for you to do right now. And as a side note, I want you to know the Thessalonian church was remarkably healthy and spiritually sound in a number of ways in their witness, and they were even young and full of life. That's part of the reason that Paul wrote the note to that church, wrote his letter to the church, is to say, man, y'all are doing good in a lot of things, but um, I want to make sure that y'all are clear on some other things and make sure this doesn't ever fail in the future. They were young, full of energy, and doing a lot of things well, yet even that very healthy church, though young, still had strong believers who at times found themselves idle, faint-hearted, and weak. If we obey God, we will achieve a particular effect in our actions towards our brothers and sisters who are struggling. We're seeing people who are struggling, and God's saying, don't just let them struggle. Do something. And the first effect that Paul is trying to cause in us is to admonish the idol. That's the first part of the verse. I urge you, brothers, admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. Some of us have that unfortunate inclination to admonish everyone. Y'all know anyone like that? Or maybe you have an aunt, uncle, grandparent like that, or they just admonish everyone? Oh, you're having a hard time? Get over it. Admonish, admonish. Oh, you're happy? I admonish you for being too happy. We have that unfortunate inclination to admonish everyone. And this verse is saying, let me be real clear about it. Some people need to be admonished sometimes. Is that clear? 
Some people need to be admonished sometimes, but some of us feel like everyone needs to be admonished all the time. We deem ourselves the town admonisher, walking around tuning everybody up all the time. I want to make sure it's clear. We admonish the idol. Admonish the idol. And here's why we have to make sure we're clear on who we admonish. We could find ourselves horribly out of step with the Spirit if we go around admonishing the faint-hearted and the weak when what they need from us is our encouragement and our help. I'm going to say that again because it's really important. We need to make sure we're clear on what it means to admonish the idol because we could be horribly out of step with the Holy Spirit if we walk around admonishing the weak and the faint-hearted when what they need from us is our help and our encouragement. We're going to dig into that a little deeper and what it means and what it doesn't mean. So what does this look like? First, this is what we do. Admonishing is what we do when we see a brother or sister who is idle. And this is where it gets tricky to me because think about it. The idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak look a lot alike. Cody, will you put the bulletin or whoever's back there, put the bulletin image up? Cody put this together. It's, it's really fitting. Um, isn't it good to know people actually think through images? They don't just clip art up on there. Um, I'm encouraged by this. Way to go. Um, I want y'all to look at, at this little, little image. The faint-hearted and the weak and the, um, the idol look a lot alike. They're not running the race as they should. They're hindered, they're burdened, they're weighed down. There's got to be some way that we can know, what is that dude going through? Does he need to be admonished, encouraged, or helped? Or maybe a little bit all three. We'll get into that next week. It's not always so cut and dry like, okay, this is an admonishment time. Sometimes it's all three. But we're not talking about that right now, so don't be distracted by it. Burdened, hindered, weighed down. Go ahead and turn, take the image off. This is where it takes wisdom and insight and, pay attention, investments in relationships to know people well enough to see what they're actually struggling with. If you don't know someone well enough, if you're not actually walking with people and invested in their lives, they could be struggling with one thing, and because you don't know them, you're just assuming they're this, and you'll label them. But if you're in a relationship with them and walking with them, enjoying the unity that you have in Christ, you'll have more insight into what it is they're actually struggling with. In this particular instance, we're called to admonish the idol, and the term idol, idol, and I want to make sure it's really clear, this is I-D-L-E, not I-D-O-L, okay? Are we clear on that? Idol, like, I'm not doing anything, not like a worshiping an I-D-O-L. Okay, are we clear? Good, fantastic. All right, we're all good. Um, the term idol is a military term in the original language. And it means unarranged, lacking good order, and at times, insubordinate or disobedient. Unarranged, lacking good order, and at times, insubordinate or disobedient. When we see someone who is idle, we see someone hindered in their journey because they lack or refuse or disobey the discipline and the good structure in their lives that God would have for them. That's what we see when we see someone who's idle. They're either refusing or they, they simply lack it 
or they're disobeying and they're not accepting the good order and the good structure that God would have for their lives. Now, I'm aware that when I mention words like discipline, structure, and order, some of us break out into hives. We have an allergic reaction to such words. They feel restraining, like the walls are closing in on us. Too much order, too much structure, too much detail, too much attention to it. No, push the walls back out. I'm an artist. But consider for a moment what the Proverbs say about discipline and order. I'm gonna share some of these things. I don't want you to necessarily turn there, but just listen closely because the Proverbs are kind of hard to get all in the narrative way of thinking because they're choppy. So just listen closely. And the reason I'm sharing these things, I wanna be really clear about why I'm sharing these things. This will help us to see why idleness is not good. And I mean, I'm not just saying not generally good, but not good in the Lord's eyes. This will help us to see why idleness is not good. Proverbs 13.4 says this, the soul of the sluggard, sluggard's one of those words that just, it sounds like what it is, sluggard, like if someone called you a sluggard, you'd be like, hold on, hold on, whoa, sluggard, that's a big word, sluggard. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. There's another picture in Proverbs of the sluggard who puts his hand in the dish and is too lazy to return it to his mouth, so it just sits there in the casserole. That's the sluggard in Proverbs. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. First, I want you to take note that the Proverbs talking about the soul, which we'll come back to in a second. Second, I want you to see that if you are idle, it's impossible to be diligent at the same time. Those things just don't go together. You can't say, I'm a very diligent, idle person. The only thing that you can be diligent about when you're idle is being idle. It's sort of like when you're wrong. <laughs> the only thing you can be diligent about is being wrong. So they don't go together. You cannot be diligent in anything if you are idle, if you don't have that structure, that form, that obedience, that reception of God's order in your life, you're not gonna be diligent. Think about your marriage. If you're not living as God tells y'all to live as a husband and a wife, that's idle. If there's a lack of structure and order and you're just kind of existing, that's idle. And you can't say, I'm being diligent in my marriage if that is actually what's going on in your idol. Diligence and idleness do not go together. Good structure is a good thing. God is telling us that there is a blessing in diligence, and not just in worldly things, but also in the case of our soul. You may think, well, sure, someone who works hard makes a lot of money and they can pay all their bills on time. That's true, but we're talking about the soul here. I would ask, are you diligent about matters pertaining to your soul? Are you diligent about matters pertaining to your soul? That's one of those questions you write down and in your quiet time you go to it. Say, am I being diligent about matters pertaining to my soul? Then a little earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs four, five, and six, the three chapters have a developing metaphor that contrasts two different people. I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to listen to me explain it because I'm trying to take things that are choppy and turn them into a bit of a narrative so we can understand it. 
Proverbs 4, 5, and 6 contrast two different people, and the two different people being contrasted are this, the path ponderer and the wandering fool. The path ponderer and the wandering fool. Now, what does that mean? There is one called wise who looks at their path and ponders it. Looking back to learn from what has happened, looking forward to anticipate what is to come, the path ponderer. And there is one called fool who takes their eyes off of the path altogether and just wanders aimlessly. You see what's being contrasted here. One who is pondering the path, looking back, looking forward, and one who says, what path? Just kind of wanders aimlessly. My two-year-olds will do that sometimes. They'll just go out in the yard and just kind of wander aimlessly. You wonder what's going through their head. Wandering aimlessly. I want you all to know that this is not just the difference between laid-back people and uptight people. Some of us need to be convicted by that right there. You might be thinking, well, I'm a bit of a wanderer, but it's because I'm not so uptight like all these other people who've got their schedules. This is not, we're not talking about that kind of a difference here. We're not talking about the difference between laid-back people and uptight people. And I want to also make it clear, we're not talking about the difference just between left-brain people and right-brain people either. We're talking about the difference between unfaithfully lazy people and faithfully diligent people. You can be super creative and be an artist and, and be a path ponderer. That's not a bad thing if you're a Christian. I want you to see we're not talking about the differences just between uptight and, and laid back and left brain and right brain. We're talking about the difference between unfaithfully lazy people and faithfully diligent people. And some of us may need to consider that our lack of diligence in particular areas may actually be a lack of faith. Our lack of diligence in particular areas may actually be a lack of faith. So now hopefully it's clear why the idol have to be addressed. It's important that we realize this scripture tells us what to do when we encounter a brother or sister who is idle, but it also tells us what we can expect if we are the brother or sister who is idle. Do you see that? There's a twofold thing here. This is what you do when you come to someone who's idle. Man, there's a lack of order. I want to help you with that. I want to encourage you to, to um, not allow this to continue. And so I'm going to admonish you rightly. Yet, it also is what we can expect when we are the brother or sister who is idle. Some of us need to consider this because our default reaction upon being admonished is to get angry and defensive. If someone loves you and someone comes to you and someone says, hey, I see this. This is my perception of what I'm seeing and I want to share it with you and I, and I want to address it. You should know that person loves you and they're doing what Jesus told them to do to show you that they love you. Now, if that's all they do, y'all might want to talk about that because that's a crummy relationship. But if they come to you and they're serious about something, even if you're like, whoa, I don't see that. That's not how I am. You should listen. You should listen closely because God's put that person in your life. They may say, hey, I see you as an, an, an angry hater of people. And you'd be like, whoa, I love people and I'm happy. What are you talking about? 
But you need to listen. You need to listen to the details that they share. You need to look at the scriptures they go to and go through the process because so many of us can just default to I'm angry and I'm defensive. Back up. Because this is what the scripture is doing. It's telling us what we can expect to receive and to need to give when the time is appropriate. Let's make a little transition here because I think that if we understand what it means to admonish, we will be far more inclined to give it and receive it. It's a tricky word, admonished. To me, as I was praying through the details of the sermon, this is the hardest part of the sermon. What does it mean to admonish? Because there's so many other words that are kind of like it, and some of them are far more extreme, some of, us are, some of them are far less extreme. We're not just talking about encouraging someone, but we're also not talking about ripping their heads off. So what does it mean to admonish the idol? When many of us think about admonishing another, we get it confused with rebuking and remonstrance. There's certainly a time for those things if, if someone is persisting in sin over and over and refusing to repent. But it's not the same as admonishment. Or we can take it even further, and some of us think of admonishment, and we hear and think of things like smiting, like a real extreme. We picture someone with their finger on another person's face shaming them because of their sin. That's what we think of when we think of admonish. It's right in your face. Shaming them because of their sin and just expressing your very stark disapproval of their life. But this is also not what it means to admonish one another. Turn to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 14, and before I read it, I want you all to know that context is important. The Corinthian church is our clearest reference in the scriptures of a church that's pretty messed up. They get a number of things backwards. They intermingle God's commands with cultural preferences and generally need a lot of instruction in order to right their wrongs and move in holiness. That's our context. That's what Pastor um, Paul here is addressing in this church. That, that's the kind of church he's addressing. Someone that needs a lot of instruction because they just keep messing up over and over again. He says this in 4.14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. See what happened there? I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Paul's heart is heavy for this church, and he speaks very directly to them. If you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you're like, man, he, he has to address them very directly because of some of the things that they're, they're moving wrongly in. But here he makes it clear that admonishment has nothing to do with shaming someone in their sin. I want to say it again. Admonishment has nothing to do with shaming someone in their sin. We don't shame our beloved. You hear that? We don't shame our beloved, but we do admonish them. So if it's not a shaming them or shaming them, you don't ashame someone, you shame someone, just in case you are wondering. If it's not shaming them, then what is it? Turn to Acts chapter 20. So Paul 
writes them, not to make them ashamed, but to admonish them as his beloved. And then here we see Paul addressing another church, the Ephesian church, and the Ephesian elders in Acts 20. And look at verses 26 through 32. So if it's not shaming, then what is it? Acts 20, 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want y'all to know that when you read about admonishing in the Bible, something that usually pops up with it, you see admonish, you see whole counsel of God. Admonish the richness of the scriptures. Admonish, don't stray from the Bible when you're doing it. They go together. The whole counsel of God admonishing go together. And here he says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And he says this to their leadership. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You hear someone who loves the church and wants to make sure other leaders are loving the church rightly. Then he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul's giving us a great example here of path pondering. He hasn't left them yet, but he's going to. And he's saying, as I leave and I look down this path, you know what I see? There will be people that arise from this very leadership in the Ephesian church to bring twisted things that lead people away from the Lord. And I want you good leaders, you godly leaders, to make sure they don't do that. Make sure that doesn't happen. Paul is a path ponderer as he is encouraging them. And he goes on to say, in verse 31, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. With tears. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here we see path-pondering Paul preparing the leaders for the ministry. What does he do? He's warning them of what's to come and specifically reiterating the importance of the centrality of the word in all things. And he isn't just declaring it to them, he's modeling it for them. Paul models it for them. For three years he admonished them, day and night. That means he gets a call late at night, he doesn't say, I'm off duty. He admonishes where it's necessary. Three years. If we're going to be biblically admonishing and admonished people, we must also be a persevering people. We have to see this connection because I'm going to tell you, if you misunderstand what it means to admonish someone or you misunderstand what it means to be admonished, you will do what many, many people in this community have done and you will say, I'm out of here. And you won't persevere with the people that God has placed you with. But we are called to be a persevering people. We persevere with our Lord and we persevere with each other because the Lord is a gift from himself, has given us unity with one another. And so we must, if we're going to be an admonishing and an admonished people, we absolutely must be a persevering people and stop breaking ties so easily. So many churches exist because of splits as opposed to multiplication. We must persevere with one another. Paul went the distance with the church. You see him addressing the Corinthian church. You see him addressing the Thessalonian church. You see him addressing the Ephesian church. You see him addressing others, the church in Rome. 
Paul went the distance with the church. Too often we allow our sin to separate us. To be clear, that's what sin does. Sin separates us from God and sin separates us from each other. That's why God tells us to put sin to death as a community. That's why the call to confess and repent is repeated so often in the scriptures. That's why in Matthew 18, Jesus says to go to your sinning brother rather than just walk away from him. It is not right for us to so easily break the bond of peace that we share in Christ, to observe sin or perceived sin in another's life and quickly use it as a decision, a decision to part ways is hasty and disobedient. If you call that person a brother or a sister, hasty and disobedient. You call that person a brother or sister, you see something you're not sure about, you don't run the other way. You go to them because you love them. Notice that Paul admonishes them with tears. He admonishes them with tears. I hope this is helping us to break down those misconceptions about admonishing, just being yelling and screaming and pointing your finger and telling people how horrible they are. He admonishes them with tears. There's a significant difference between being brought to tears over the sins of your children and being simply annoyed by their disobedience. There's a difference between being brought to tears over the sins of your children and just being annoyed by their disobedience and how they're messing up your day. There's a difference between your heart hurting over your spouse's sin. Wives, does, does your heart hurt over your husband's sin? Husbands, does your heart hurt over your wife's sin? Because you both have it, to be clear. If anyone's sitting there being like, yeah, I don't sin and they do, it's a problem. There's people who can counsel you through that. But you're both sinners and your heart should hurt over the sin of the other. There's a difference between being simply annoyed by your spouse, shouting at your spouse because they're frustrating you. It, it may actually just be a good exercise for all of us right now to consider when is the last time that we wept over the sin of another person? When's the last time you wept over the sin of another person? Sometimes we don't even weep over our own sin. We just allow it to creep in and it's kind of part of our lives and I'll try to manage it so it's not too visible. But we're called to not only weep over our own sin, we're called to weep over the sin of other people, to admonish them with tears. Don't turn there. But Colossians 3.16 paints the picture of a people, it says, who are admonishing one another and addressing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts toward God, admonishing one another and addressing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts toward God. Uh, I always get kind of cracked up when I read this verse because uh, I always think that they're singing the admonishment when I read that verse, like, you are insubordinate, you know, that was horrible what you did. Um, but it doesn't actually say they, they address admonishing in song, but what it does say is that they admonish one another in all wisdom, and they're still able to sing together. They're still able to worship the Lord together. They don't address it and say, song time is off. You're a sinner. They, they, they continue with one another. They persevere with one another. They're able to address these things, not, not only address them, but address them with wisdom, 
singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts toward God. So you have people here who are gathered for worship, admonishing one another, and that means there are people who are being admonished by the others, and the result is worship to God with thankfulness in their hearts. This is not a fairy tale. This is not some ridiculous notion. Let me remind you that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof and correction that the man of God may be trained in it and equipped for righteousness. This is not ridiculous. It would be wonderful if we were a church that could admonish one another, be admonished by one another, and be able to go together to the Lord in song, praising him for his goodness with thankfulness in our hearts, not spite, not anger, not resentment, not bitterness, thankfulness. The result of good admonishment is a heart that is thankful. And the reason that that happened, according to Colossians 3.16, you just think, man, how, how, how in the world could a church do that? I've never seen that. It, there's so much division in church, it's heartbreaking. We are horrible at having different beliefs within the same faith. Someone's stuff doesn't line up just like ours, I'm out of here, or you're out of here. That's how we function in so many circles. But here we see this awesome setting where they're addressing one another rightly and they're thankful in their hearts. And how did they do that? How in the world do they do that? And the beginning of Colossians 3.16 says, it was because they were letting the word of Christ dwell in them richly. This is one of those deep pastoral moments. How do you do this? Read your Bible. How's this gonna work? Read your Bible. Aaron and I joke about that pretty regularly. Read your Bible. Oh, you got a deep question? Read your Bible. That's what it's saying. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's what they did. And look at the awesome result. If you're not allowing the word to dwell richly in you, and if you are not spending uninterrupted time meditating on the scriptures, you will not have what it takes to bless others through admonishing them. When someone needs to be admonished in that moment, you'll fumble. You'll mess it up because you'll address them in a way that's entirely too emotional and too judgmental, and you'll, you'll do it in a way that's void of the scriptures. You won't, you won't take this to them, you'll take this to them. And there's a big difference between the two. We have to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly if we will admonish one another in the loving manner that Jesus has outlined for us. you'll not be able to address your children with something instructive. There's such a big difference, and I'm convicted about this every day. I've got four kids, so I'm a little crazy. They're seven, four, two, and one. And it's real easy to go, stop it! For the hundredth time, just stop it. Stop what? It! Stop it! Just, just quit. You're in the car. Zip it! Quit. That's easy to do as a parent. What's difficult to do is say, I'm going to take an entire 60 seconds out of my busy life to say, hey, here's what you're doing and here's what you need to be doing. And it's because that's what God tells us to do. When I do that with my children, it's always convicting because I'm like, oh yeah, that took so much time. 
that was so much more. There's such a difference between saying, quit it, stop it, don't do that, get out of the room, go to that room, do this with your brother or sister, stop, go clean up the room. Ah. There's such a difference between that and, and, hey, let's talk about what you're doing there. Stop being ungrateful. Okay, that's good to stop being ungrateful, but can I give them some instruction? Can I give them something else in place of the ungratefulness? When that happens in our home, it's very different. It's not as explosive. It's far more productive and fruitful. And generally, something will actually happen in the children. They respond better when they're not screamed at. (laughs) When they're instructed, they say, okay, yes, sir. And they'll go do the thing. But if I just scream at them, they're just left saying, I I don't really know what to do, but I sure don't want to make him mad. It can happen in our marriages too. You'll only voice your disdain and disapproval of your spouse, but fall short of really helping them to move to a healthier and more, more obedient place if there is sin in their life. Some of us say that we love someone too much to admonish them. I've actually heard this a lot over the years. Someone will come to me, tell me about someone else's horrible sin. I'll say, have you gone to them and addressed that? I could never. I, could, I love them too much. I can't go place that burden upon them. I love them too much to admonish them. Rather than seeing it as an impossibility because we love someone so much, my hope is that in light of the scriptures that we would see it as a non-negotiable because we love someone so much. It shouldn't be an impossibility. It should be a non-negotiable. We should say, I love them too much to allow that to continue. We are not judge and jury, to be clear. We are not judge and jury. We are fellow sinners walking with other sinners. To walk into a church building and realize it's filled with sinners and to be shocked would be like walking into a hospital and realizing it's filled with sick people and being shocked. We're sinners. We're walking with one another. Older sinners parenting younger sinners. Married sinners friend sinners, our disapproval is not the focus when we admonish someone. If you're mindful of the fact that you are a sinner addressing a sinner, your disapproval is not the focus when you're admonishing someone. I mean, just one one way to gauge that is if you go to them and then you say what you need to say and you leave, think, are they left with instruction or do they just know that I disapprove? Did I even say anything about God? Did I share God's word in any way, shape, form, or fashion? Because when you admonish someone, your disapproval is not the focus. The focus is based on loving instruction. Write this down in your notes if you're taking notes. Loving instruction delivered gently that's rooted in Scripture. That's the focus of admonishment. Loving instruction gently delivered that is rooted in Scripture. If you love someone, you will not allow them to seek satisfaction and disobedience. If you trust God, you will help them to seek fulfillment in the only place that it can be found, Jesus. You'll lead well in those circumstances. You will plead with them. It's okay to plead with people. You plead with them about the lies that they're believing and you'll be brought to tears and care for them as you walk them through the word. 
Think about that kind of relationship where you're so involved with someone in their life, you care for them so deeply that you could be brought to tears by such circumstances. Pleading with both God and them about their idle, unstructured, disobedient, insubordinate, out of order living. As we prepare to take the supper, I think it's really appropriate to appreciate how Jesus admonishes us. He does that with his word. He instructs us, he admonishes us. There are times where we persevere in our sin and we need rebuke. But think about how wonderful of a blessing it is that Jesus admonishes us. Had he simply looked at our sinful lives and pronounced his strong disapproval, we would have no right to gather together at his table. He just looked at us and said, disapprove, uh, we would have no right to gather at his table. Had he put his finger in our face or had he stood out of our house with a horrible phrase on a poster board, shaming us because of what we had done wrong, we would simply have to receive what he offered, shame and disapproval. Think about if that was your case. Seriously, just consider it for a moment as we prepare to take this up. Think about if your circumstance, your situation was such that Jesus offers you shame and disapproval and that's all you can accept. You'd be saying, are there any other options? Is there anything I can do? Nope, there's nothing you can do. Thankfully, Jesus didn't just offer us shame <coughs> and disapproval. When we rightly admonish others, we are simply lavishing upon them what has been lavished upon us. Jesus doesn't leave us with shame and disapproval. He offers us life. He offers us himself. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He says that to sinners. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus will say that to me if I get my life straight and I stop sinning altogether. Then he'll say, come to me and I'll give you rest. No, he says that to sinners. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Jesus doesn't just visit us in our darkness and mock us. He doesn't come to us in the dark corners and say, ha, loser. He brings us the light of himself. He brings the light of himself to us instructing us in his way and leading us into life everlasting. And while we were still sinners, he did this. Because of that, I truly believe that if we saw how blessed we are in being admonished by Jesus, we would be eager to bless others and be blessed by others in a like manner. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this day. As we prepare to take the supper, Lord, I am uh, humbled and encouraged. Lord, I pray that we would be very, very thankful that you didn't just announce your disapproval but that you gave us a way out of our sin. You, you provided yourself as a sacrifice. You showed us what life in you is. You showed us how 
there's this darkness we could live in, or there's a light of everlasting hope, marvelous light, as you call it in your word, that exists in you if we walk according to your ways as believers. Lord, help us to treasure that to such a degree that we will do the hard work of caring for one another through admonishment when one is idle. We love you, Lord. I pray that we would see your blessings as blessings and not something else. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.